This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Good morning and welcome. My name is Chip Lacker, and I'm the director of the Stanford Institute for International Studies. And I'm delighted to welcome all of you to the first annual International Day at Stanford University, uh, sponsored by SIIS. First, a technical note. For those of you who have your cell phones on, please turn them off. I have done so under strict instructions from the audio crew, and I would urge you to do the same. We have a full day planned. I hope all of you have your uh, programs. I'm not going to go through it at this particular time. I'll have a few more words uh, to say about it when I return to the podium. But it gives me special pleasure this morning uh, to kick off the day by introducing Stanford's 10th president, John Hennessy, who will share with us uh, some thoughts on this uh, uh, auspicious day. John? Thank you, Chip. I'd like to welcome all our distinguished guests and colleagues uh, to this International Day. Um, what I want to do this morning is to personally share some exciting news that we released um, just last week, which I think will place this conference and our efforts in the area of international studies in a whole new light. But to place that announcement in, in context, I want to take you back about four years um, during my first year as president. I formed a committee of senior faculty from across the university to answer and advise me on the following question. If Stanford were to look forward and ask, what areas should it really try to focus its resources as an entire university, as a whole university? in over the next one or two or three decades. What would you choose? This group of faculty came back with three areas. Biomedical research, the area of the environment and sustainability, and most importantly to where we are today, the area of international affairs and studies. Of course, shortly after that, a series of events occurred around the world which reinforced our need to make that investment in international studies. They began with failed states in Afghanistan, in Africa, and other parts of the world. They followed with the tragedies of 9-11, and then the SARS epidemic. Those events, I think, quite simply convinced us that no nation can be an island anymore, that events around the world affect the lives of peoples and countries around the world. And Stanford had to think about how it could make a contribution to addressing the complex set of problems that we saw. Of course, whenever one wants to do something like this, the first thing you have to do is find some faculty to lead a planning effort, faculty who can be decisive, who can think hard about what the real challenges are, who can have the foresight to think about how a university can contribute both as a research institution as well as an educational institution. So I asked Chip Blacker and Elizabeth Pate Cornell, my colleague in management science and engineering, to put together a faculty planning committee. That committee worked for more than a year before presenting an initial presentation, an initial plan, which was followed then by a final plan. They urged that the university build in three areas the challenges of peace and security, the challenges of good governance at all levels, from the UN down to the governance of individual countries, and the area of human development in its full spectrum, from issues of economic development to issues of health care to issues of education. They urged us to think about the driving factors that are changing our world so quickly, rapid globalization, the use of technology around the world, 
and the rising ethnic and religious strife that we see in so many countries. That planning effort really helped us understand how Stanford could make a significant contribution. So last Thursday, as we drew that planning effort to a close and began to talk about some of our closest friends about the initiative and where we wanted to go, we announced the formal launch of a university-wide international initiative with the Stanford Institute for International Studies playing the center point, the long pole in a large tent that would embrace the full university. And it is indeed the full university, faculty from the education school, from engineering, from medicine, from business, and of course, from humanities and sciences have been involved in the planning effort. Most importantly, we've had tremendous support from our donors and our closest friends. Last Thursday, we announced that we had raised $94 million to start this initiative. $50 million of that gift comes from Brad Freeman, our current trustee, and Ron Spogley, a member of the IIS Board of Visitors for many years. That will help endow the center, will help ensure that we can hire 10 new interdisciplinary faculty to work in the area of international affairs, that we will hire them in a completely different way, thinking about the needs and the goals of the entire university as an institution. But if you think about what Stanford's role has to be in this area, it has to be a combination of research and education. Because we not only create new ideas and help find new solutions to problems, but we also educate the next generation who will take on leadership roles in trying to find solutions to these problems. So we've also had tremendous support there. Susan and Craig McCaw have helped us by building a large fund for doing something that I'm quite passionate about, which is increasing the number of international students among our undergraduates. I believe that it is in the best interest of all our undergraduates to have the opportunity to study, to live with, and get to know somebody who comes from a different part of the world and who brings a different perspective to the problems and the challenges we face. A gift from Susan Ford Dorsey to help build financial strength in a program that is now perhaps a small boutique program, the International Policy Studies Program, but one that we're very proud of. And I still recall an event a few years ago where we had the first student ever to attend Stanford from Mongolia, a young woman active in the Mongolian democracy movement who completed a degree here. She completed a degree, by the way, uh, at the age of 31 or 32 uh, and had her 16-year-old son living with her. I knew that when she headed back to Mongolia, she was going to make a real difference in that country, and Stanford would make an important contribution to the world. But equally importantly, this is also a university-wide initiative. So another key part of this gift to help ensure that we build the bridges we need to build between the center and our various other activities, we have a gift to help build a bridge in the area of global business and economics that will tie the business school together to the, area, to the efforts in the Institute for International Studies. And finally, a gift from our long-term friend, Walter Shorenstein, to endow APARC, the Asia-Pacific Research Center. Together, I think these gifts will make a wonderful start. I, I said recently that you could think of this as putting jet fuel in the tanks. It will take us where we want to go, where we can make a difference, and move Stanford into a unique role. My hope is that Stanford will play an even greater role in the future in helping to find solutions and educate leaders for the complex problems we face around the world. Thank you for coming, and I hope you enjoy the conference today. Thank you, John, for uh, that welcome and for placing today's conference uh, in a larger context. This is indeed a very special day uh, for the Stanford Institute for uh, International Studies, uh, and it's a great pleasure for me and a great honor 
to reintroduce myself as the director of the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. If you would join me, please, in, a, in acknowledging this extraordinary contribution. I also want to offer special thanks this morning uh, to longtime friends of the Institute, uh, Reuben and Ingrid Hills, for their support of this conference and other conferences uh, at the Institute uh, over the years. It is most appreciated. And to the Office of the President of Stanford University for its uh, support of this effort and for its support of so much of what the Institute does. It's also a pleasure for me, a special personal pleasure for me this morning, to introduce William J. Perry to come to the podium to share his thoughts on where we find ourselves at, the, at this point in time with respect to the world around us. Bill Perry needs very little by way of introduction to this crowd, and I will honor uh, Bill's perennial request that I keep it short. He is known, I think, to everyone in this room as an entrepreneur, uh, as an educator, and as a distinguished and passionate uh, public servant. Just to underscore the most significant of Bill's roles in that third sector, that is, as a public servant, uh, Bill served as the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering during the Carter administration, as Deputy Secretary, and then Secretary of Defense during the first Clinton administration. Bill is the Michael and Barbara Berberian Professor of Engineering uh, and Senior Fellow <clears throat> at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies and at the Hoover Institution. Uh, Bill has been uh, a great mentor of mine since his return to Stanford uh, in 1981, and it always brings me the greatest pleasure to introduce to any audience the 19th Secretary of Defense of the United States, the Honorable William J. Perry. Thank you very much, Jeff. Uh, my talk today is entitled, Our Last Best Chance. I named this after a docudrama that has just been released by NTI, the Nuclear Threat Initiative. NTI was founded by Sam Nunn and Ted Turner in the belief that the gravest threat to our nation today was that of nuclear terrorism. It is dedicated to taking actions to reduce that threat. Last year, for example, it facilitated the removal from Serbia of highly enriched uranium that was in danger of being bought or stolen by terrorists. The docudrama, by the way, tells a story of three parallel efforts by al-Qaeda to obtain a nuclear bomb, one of which is successful. The story, of course, is fiction, but it is based solidly on fact. It is designed to awaken the public to this danger. If, in fact, a nuclear bomb is detonated in one of our cities, we will all be asking the question, what could we have done to prevent it? NTI's position is that we already know the answer to that question. And so they ask a second question. Why don't we do it now? Now, they say, is our last best chance. Well, my talk is directed to the first question, how to reduce the danger. And I will leave it to you to consider the second question, why don't we do it now? In 1998, Ash Carter and I published our book, Preventive Defense, which proposed a new security strategy in the wake of the Cold War. Chapter 5 of that book was entitled Catastrophic Terrorism, and it forecast that the United States would soon suffer a large-scale terror attack with catastrophic results. We prescribed preventive measures to reduce the likelihood of such an attack. But we recognized even then 
that those measures were, inex- were expensive and inconvenient. So we also forecast that none of them would be taken until after the attack. Unfortunately, both forecasts turned out to be correct. But after 9-11, our government did respond vigorously. In fact, those of you who fly the friendly skies as often as I do know all too well how airport security has been transformed in the wake of 9-11. Our government also responded vigorously in Afghanistan, shutting down the terrorist training camps and dispersing the al-Qaeda organization. And certainly, the war with Iraq has been a transforming event, although it remains to be seen whether the results will be positive or negative. But I believe that the response to the threat of nuclear terrorism has been weak and it has been ill-focused. The lead story in the Washington Post on Monday was that the United States was unprepared for a nuclear terror attack. The article went on to lament the absence of a plan for evacuation if a nuclear bomb were to be detonated in one of our cities. The article was correct and made several constructive suggestions, but I must say it overlooked the major point. Even if we had a plan for promptly evacuating citizens downwind for a nuclear blast, the outcome would still be catastrophic. This is what the heart of Washington would look like after the detonation of a small, a small nuclear bomb. This, of course, is a picture of Hiroshima, which suffered a small nuclear bomb. More than 100,000 people would be killed, not counting the additional deaths that could result from downwind fallout. The great majority of our elected officials would be killed or incapacitated, putting in question the continuing function of our government. Additionally, it would do incalculable material damage. It would send international stock markets into a disastrous plunge, causing the loss of hundreds of billions. It would change forever Americans' view of their security and their government's ability to protect them. And it could lead to extreme security measures designed to prevent future attacks, but at a considerable loss of our civil liberties. So it is clear just how devastating such an attack would be. And it's also clear that this scenario is not fanciful. In fact, Graham Allison, in his recent book, Nuclear Terrorism, recounts a chilling story that makes this point. He relates that one month after 9-11, the president was informed in his daily intelligence brief of a report that al-Qaeda already had a 10-kiloton bomb in New York City. The report was considered credible enough that the president ordered initiation of the continuity of government program. Vice President Cheney and several hundred other government officials were sent to a secure location, prepared to take over control of the government if there were a nuclear bomb detonated in Washington. Happily, this report, though credible, was wrong. But Allison offers his judgment that such an attack is inevitable if, if we stay on our present course. What leads him to this apocalyptic conclusion? He notes that Osama bin Laden's official spokesman has written that al-Qaeda's aim, their aim, is to kill four million Americans as vengeance for the wrong that Americans have inflicted on Muslims these past few decades. I quote from his statement, We have the right to kill four million Americans, two million of them children, and to exile twice as many and wound and cripple hundreds of thousands. And so that you don't miss his point, he lists the wrongs to show how he arrived at the exact number required for retribution. Allison also notes that the only plausible way of achieving that number is by using nuclear weapons. And finally, he notes that Osama bin Laden has told his followers that obtaining weapons of mass destruction is a religious duty. You know, I really hate to give this talk. I hate being a Cassandra. 
but I feel like I'm watching the second act of a Greek tragedy. And I want to rush up to the stage and tell the actors to change course before the third act begins. However, I am a congenital optimist in spite of what I've said. So I will leave you not with this, I will leave you, I will not leave you with this dire forecast. Because I believe that the tragedy is preventable. And I will describe today some of the ingredients of the preventive actions. That this tragedy is looming should not be a surprise to Americans. The only issue, the only issue on which both Bush and Kerry agreed during the recent presidential campaign was that nuclear terrorism was the major threat facing our country today. Acknowledging the seriousness of the threat, which the President has clearly done, is a necessary first step. But that step should be followed by thoughtful and forceful actions. To determine what those actions should be, I refer back to the question I asked earlier. What could we have done to prevent that tragedy? And I will describe to you my answer to that question. I will start with the actions already underway by our government. The first strategy is to go after, their first strategy is to go after the terrorists. I think that is a good strategy. And I also think that they've implemented it well in Afghanistan against all odds and with considerable skill. Iraq is a different story. The military campaign against the Iraqi army was brilliantly executed and led to a swift victory. Inexplicably, the plan for defeating the Iraqi army was not accompanied by a viable plan for dealing with the predictable insurgency that followed. As a consequence, the insurgents had a chance to get their footing, and we are now engaged in a dirty, bloody urban insurgent operations whose outcome is still uncertain. While I have criticized the administration for not planning adequately for the second phase, I do not criticize the strategy they are now pursuing, which is to stand up an Iraqi government and Iraqi security force as quickly as possible. But the way ahead is very difficult. The outcome in Iraq still uncertain, and the intended consequences of this insurgency war loom as a major problem for the future. The insurgents seem to have an endless supply of men and women willing to be suicide bombers. They attack American military units and civilian contractors whenever they can. But American soldiers and Marines are formidable opponents, so the strategy has been shifting to soft targets. They are going after the Iraqis, whom they call traitors. That is, those Iraqis who are working to rebuild Iraq's civil and governmental structure so that it becomes a decent and safe place to live. So while our soldiers and Marines are winning skirmishes against insurgents, we should not be complacent we should not believe that our military actions in Iraq are actually reducing the terrorist threat to the United States. The danger is very real that for every terrorist our military kills in Iraq, another two will spring up. And we should not believe that our military action in Iraq is containing the terrorist actions to that country. The terrorists already have expanded their operations to attack soft targets in Egypt and in Lebanon. And we must expect that they will soon direct some of their attacks to our own country. So based on the history of the terrorist activity to this point, we should not count on our military operations against terrorists being sufficient to stop them from attacking targets in the United States and preventing suicide bombers from attacking malls or buses or restaurants is very, very difficult, as demonstrated by the Israelis, whose defense against such attacks is far superior to our own. Even if our efforts can have only limited success in stopping conventional terror attacks, 
a determined effort can dramatically reduce the chance of nuclear terrorism. So our main efforts should be directed to preventing the ultimate tragedy, a nuclear bomb being set off in one of our cities. There should be no doubt, no doubt at all, that if the al-Qaeda organization can get a nuclear bomb, they will use it. So how do we prevent that tragedy? The centerpiece of the administration's strategy for dealing with a nuclear attack is the National Missile Defense System now being installed in Alaska. That system has been criticized for being technically deficient on the basis of its test firings, but that is almost beside the point. Even if it worked exactly according to its specifications, it is irrelevant to the threat of nuclear terrorism. Terrorists will not use a ballistic missile to deliver their bomb. They will use a truck or a freighter. The mode of operation could be like that, like the delivery of the truck bomb in Oklahoma City, but with the truck carrying a nuclear bomb instead of a few tons of explosives. My main objection to the National Missile Defense System being, presently being installed is that it diverts resources and effort away from nuclear terrorism, which is a much greater and certainly more imminent threat. But there's some good news in this otherwise grim picture. No terror group is able to build a nuclear bomb from scratch. Only a nation state can manage to get a project of that complexity. For a terror group to get a nuclear bomb, they must buy or steal one from a nuclear power, or with more difficulty, put one together from the plutonium, say, that they require from a nuclear power. So the key to success, key to success is to keep them from getting the bomb or plutonium in the first place. And that is a goal that can be achieved if we make it our top priority and work at it hard enough. To be more specific, there are at least three actions that we can take that in combination would make it somewhere between difficult to impossible for a terror group to get a nuclear bomb. Let's take a moment to look at what those three actions are. First of all, we should make a dramatic reduction in the number of nuclear weapons. We should move as quickly as possible from thousands of nuclear weapons to hundreds. The United States and Russia have been moving in that direction, but not fast enough given the urgency of the problem. And their last move, the so-called Moscow Agreement, has what I consider a fatal flaw. It only entails taking nuclear weapons off deployed status and storing them. The agreement should be modified to require a dismantlement of, so that there is a major decrease in the number of nuclear weapons susceptible to being bought or stolen. Having them in warehouses in Russia does not give me any great sense of security. Secondly, we should increase the protection giving the remaining arsenal of nuclear weapons to make it much harder for a criminal team to buy or steal them. The Nunn-Lugar program, conceived by Senator Nunn and Senator Lugar, was conceived to do just that. Indeed, during the time that I was Secretary of Defense, I spent perhaps a third of my time using the Nunn-Lugar program to dismantle thousands of nuclear weapons in the former Soviet Union and provide better security for the remainder. I would like to show you a brief film clip of some of my visits in pursuit of that objective. These are clips taken from news reports shown on Moscow TV and Kiev TV, but which were not seen in the United States. They depict four visits that I made to Pervomysk, which was the crown jewel of the ICBM sites in the former Soviet Union. During my first visit there, that one site had 700 nuclear warheads, all of them targeted at the United States. I'm going to show you some of those pictures. This is from the Soviet, former Soviet archives, an SS-19 being taken out of a storage shed and moved out for a launch. 
SS-19 had six nuclear warheads on them, all of them about each of them ten times the size of the Hiroshima warhead. This is a test firing of the SS-19. That's the, that's the missile that was based at Provomysk. Here we are arriving at Provomysk for our first visit. They took us down in the control center where they demonstrated how they launched nuclear missiles at the United States. Then the general showed us one of the silos, pointing out that the warheads had already been removed from the missile. On a second visit to Provermeisk the next following year, we were overseeing the dismantlement of the missile itself. That's the SS-19 missile in the background, and Russian and Ukrainian military people seeing to its uh, dismantlement. Again, an SS-19 in the background. Now, with the ending of the Cold War, that dark cloud is drifting away. This is, this is on Moscow and Kiev TV. And we should put the same energy and skills we put to learning how to make war to learn how to make peace. This is the third visit to Provermysk where we actually blew up that silo which I showed you in the first picture. This is arriving at Kiev. I never expected to be meeting with an honor guard at the Kiev airport playing the Star Spangled Banner. Russian Minister of Defense, Ukrainian Minister of Defense, and I on the podium, we each pressed a button which sent a signal to the silo to blow it up. Then the three ministers went out to the side of the silo to see that it really had been blown up. Silos are very difficult to blow up. They're designed to, to resist high explosives. And indeed, it's a goner. This is, this, this is the silo I showed you in the first picture. Background music, by the way, is fanfare for the common man. Very appropriate. I told the, the couple who lives here about the line from Voltaire's Candide. Я сказав сім'ї, яка тут проживає, про одну з моїх улюблених цитат із роману Кандид, автор Волтер. The most important thing we can do in life is to cultivate our garden and to live in peace. Найважливіше, що ми можемо вчинити в нашому житті, це є піклуватися городом і вирощувати на ньому мир. They are cultivating their garden now, and we will live in peace. These are played in Moscow and Kiev, so I explained to them why we were doing what we were up to. Now, these are the three defense ministers planting sunflowers at the site where that silo had been. During my tenure, as a result of our activities at Provomysk and other sites, we dismantled 4,000 nuclear weapons and made three countries, Ukraine, Belarus, and Kazakhstan, entirely nuclear-free. This is the good news. The bad news is the task is far from finished, and the pace has slowed down. We need to increase the priority of reducing and safeguarding nuclear weapons so that we can accelerate the effort given to the Nunlugar program. And additionally, we need to expand Nunlugar, as has been proposed by Senator Lugar, to cover the fissile material stored at commercial reactors. Well, those are the first two actions I described to you. The third action is the most difficult, to stop the spread of nuclear weapons to other countries. The newspapers are full of stories about how we are losing that struggle. 
North Korea has built up a nuclear arsenal of a half a dozen weapons this past year and threatens to, be, to build more. Iran is only a few years behind. If these two countries are not stopped, the danger of a terrorist getting a bomb markedly increases. Moreover, their ascendancy as nuclear powers will likely be followed in rapid order by another half a dozen countries. If this happens, it will be the gravest failure of American diplomacy in our lifetime, and the consequences likely will be catastrophic. I have written several papers and op-ed pieces on specific actions I believe we should be taking to deal with this daunting problem. I will not attempt here to restate my recommendations, but only to highlight what I believe are the salient features. It is clear that neither Iran nor North Korea will easily give up their aspirations for nuclear weapons. Successfully dealing with this problem without a disastrous war will require all of our diplomatic skills, and it will require that we use all of the tools of diplomatic negotiations, sticks as well as carrots. That is, successful diplomacy must include a credible coercive element. To illustrate this point, let me consider the problem with North Korea. The United States has only one stick of any consequence, our military power, which neither we nor our allies want to use. And we have no substantial carrots that we are willing to offer. China, on the other hand, has a major stick it could use with North Korea, since if it cut off the fuel that it supplies North Korea, it could strangle them. Japan and South Korea both have major carrots in economic assistance that they are willing to give under the right conditions. Thus, we cannot deal successfully with the problem unilaterally. We will require major assistance from other nations. The good news is that the relevant nations are all parties to the six-party talks, the appropriate venue for this negotiation. The bad news is that the six-power talks have broken down with no apparent prospect of restarting. The talks have been replaced by President Bush and Kim Jong-il trading insults via the media. These insults may res result in applause for the two leaders in their own countries, but they are not leading us to a solution the nuclear danger. Even if we can get out of the mode of diplomacy through insult, we do not have a strategy that seems to be succeeding. In particular, the United States has been unsuccessful in getting the needed cooperation of the major players. And what can we do to change that? Well, first, we need to present a compelling case to our partners that the threat of nuclear terrorism is real and is not just an American problem. It could result in a nuclear detonation in their countries as well as ours. Second, we need to present a clear strategy for negotiating with North Korea, which spells out the role of each of the other parties in the Six Power Talks. Specifically, it is doubtful that we can get talks going again unless China is willing to threaten the cutoff of its fuel to pressure North Korea back to the table. The major reason we have the nuclear crisis in North Korea, of course, is North Korea's intransigence. But the major reason we've been unable to cope with this intransigence is that there's a fundamental disagreement among the parties trying to deal with it. The United States government seems to believe that the problem can be resolved by putting pressure on North Korean government that in time will lead to a change of regime. The Chinese and South Koreans seem to believe that the problem can be resolved by engaging the North Korean government in a way that in time will lead to a reform of the regime. Which of these is more likely to succeed is an interesting question, but it is not relevant to dealing with the current crisis. Neither of them, neither of them is likely to succeed in the next few years. And last year, North Korea apparently built a half a dozen nuclear bombs, and the reactor is already generating additional fuel for more bombs this year. Therefore, to deal with the nuclear crisis we are now facing, we do not have the luxury of awaiting the outcome of changes in the North Korea regime. We must deal with the government of North Korea 
as it is, not as we would wish it to be. Besides dealing with the immediate problem posed by North Korea, there is a longer-term problem of nuclear security. We'd have to deal with this immediate problem first. We also have to look at the longer issue. I would hope that the President would use the G8 as a vehicle for moving the whole world away from the danger of nuclear terrorism. Last year, he persuaded the G8 to sign up to a truly exceptional declaration about cooperating reducing the nuclear danger through an expanded, internationally funded Nanlugar program with the commitment of billions of dollars. But since then, there has been no follow-up. That is, the declaration has not been followed by money or action. The G8 declaration is a solid base for dealing with the nuclear danger. What is needed now is the political will and the political muscle to work from that base. We cannot solve this dangerous problem unilaterally, but our leadership can rally the other nations to work with us to solve it. Finally, we must understand that the threat of nuclear terrorism is qualitatively different from any other threat our nation faces. To successfully deal with it requires no less than a change of mindset. As Einstein famously said shortly after Hiroshima, since the advent of the nuclear age, everything has changed except our modes of thinking, and we thus drift towards unparalleled catastrophe, Einstein, 1947. As we work to avoid this catastrophe, we should be guided by the wise words of Elie Wiesel. Peace is not God's gift to his children. Peace is our gift to each other. Thank you very much. those of you who uh, have a question to pose uh, to do so at this time. Uh, thank you for the talk, which is terrific. Um, no problems, of course, exist in isolation, and there are many people who are concerned about the prospects of global warming. <clears throat> and one potential solution, in fact, one of the most um, viable solutions in the long run is the introduction of a lot more uh, nuclear energy. So I'd just like to ask you how you consider that in the context of the issues you've been discussing, the balance of uh, risk and probability. The question had to do with the use of nuclear energy to help deal, among other things, with the global warming problem. Uh, for whatever it may be worth, I'm a supporter of a, of a return to, to uh, building new nuclear weapon plants and using them for power. Uh, in order for this to be feasible, two things, I think, have to happen. First of all, there have to be designs of nuclear plants safer than the earlier designs, and my best uh, judgment is that it's quite feasible to do that today. And secondly, there has to be found some acceptable way of disposing of the nuclear waste that comes from these plants. As of we stand here today, there is no ag agreed plan in the United States for how to do that right now. But if those two problems can be solved, I think it's a very important part of our energy future. And as, uh, the I'm Roz Naylor, a senior fellow at the Center for Environmental Science and Policy at SIS. And it was a very interesting talk. Thanks very much. I was wondering what your assessment was of how well we understand the North Korean leadership and what its motivations are and what 
um, kinds of carrots and sticks might work. We've obviously erred in not understanding our enemy in other situations, and um, this is leadership that has allowed one of the worst famines to occur, which will obviously have generational impacts on part of its population. And so the consequences that the North Koreans uh, might face are so different than what the United States might face in terms of any kind of a nuclear blow-up. So I was wondering how well we understand the North Koreans in this whole process. I don't believe we have an acceptably good understanding of the North Korean leadership. Uh, our actions are really based on two assumptions, based on limited evidence, but probably viable assumptions. The first is that Kim Jong-il is rational. Some people have depicted him as a crazy man or an irrational person. The people that I know who have talked with him in some detail say that is not true. He has a very different way of looking at the world, but, is, but in, his, by his, in his framework, he is a rational thinker. Uh, the second is that, based on all of the evidence we have to date, the regime bases its judgments and decisions on what can be done to maintain the regime in power. That is, that is, seems to be their number one priority, is keeping themselves in power. It's not clear that they have an ideology that, is, that sustains itself today. It's not clear that they have any, uh, any longer have the aggressive intentions towards South Korea that they clearly had for several decades after the Korean War. But it's clear that they are dedicated to maintain not just the regime, but maybe even the dynasty in power. Thank you, Wendy. Wendy Lures, I'm on the Board of Visitors of the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies. Um, Very good. <laughs> Music to my ears. <laughs> uh, would you please expand about Iran? Um, I focused on North Korea as my example, not because Iran is a lesser danger, but because Iran is a less imminent danger. They are probably three years or four years behind North Korea at this time. So the more time, more flexibility, what can be done to deal with Iran? But it, were they to get to the same position in nuclear weapons that North Korea is, it would be at least as great a danger, I think, uh, to their neighbors and, and the United States and to the world. So I think it is important to try to keep them from getting nuclear weapons also. Uh, at present, the United States seems to have subcontracted dealing with Iran to the European community. I think Europe has a very important role to play in this, and I think it's appropriate that they are working the problem. Um, my criticism of our administration's approach is that I think we ought to be working cooperatively with Iran, not standing off on the sideline. I have a feel. I, I, I believe, and I, I truly think our government believes also that the Europeans are going to fail in this initiative. But with the combined efforts of the United States and Europe, I think we have a better probability of succeeding. I don't have a lot of optimism that the present negotiation that Europe has with Iran is going to succeed. And in fact, in, uh, news in the media in just the last few days tended to underscore that point. I think. Bill, if I could uh, ask one question, uh, understanding that uh, uh, it would take much longer than the two minutes that you have to respond fully to this. Could you comment on the relationship between the types of research and training that go on at institutions like Stanford, not only at Stanford, with respect to international issues, international security issues, environmental issues, um, and the contribution that those efforts make or do not make to good policy and good policy making. Uh, that's a leading question, <laughs> but a good one. Uh, the reason I came to this institute, and then the CSAC, Professor CSAC, <clears throat> after I left the job as Undersecretary of Defense and later after I came back as Secretary is because I believe the answer to that question is that it is crucial for this country to have good policy, foreign policy on into the future, to have research institutes like this. When I say like we have here at the Institute for National Studies, I don't mean to suggest that there are many of them. 
But I think the, what's done at the Institute for International Studies is truly unique, unique in several respects. <clears throat> the first is that it combines a truly great research institution with scholars who are knowledgeable of and dedicated to working on policy. And that the synergism that comes from that combination is just magic. Secondly, it combines these policymakers and research people with students. Uh, all of you have probably believed there's some benefit to the students from being able to mix with the professors and research here. I can tell you the benefit goes the other way around, too. I get great uh, stimulation and insight from the work that I do with students here. And, and finally, we have here, I think, a unique combination of combining technical and scientific thinking with policy thinking. Uh, CSEC, Center for International Security and, and, and Cooperation, which is a component of uh, IIS, has, from its inception, when John Lewis and Sid Drell formed it many decades ago, insisted on having co-directors, one from science and one from policy background. And that has been, I think, an absolutely critical ingredient to its success. If you look around the country at other policy institutions, you do not find any other that have this particular combination or have been able to bring it together so successfully as we've brought here. Thank you, Bill. And thank you for sharing your thoughts with us this morning. We're moving to the first uh, morning uh, plenary session, and I would invite Lynn Eden to uh, come to the podium. Uh, Lynn from the uh, Center for International Security and uh, Cooperation is the, uh, is the management arm of this morning's plenary. I would also invite uh, uh, the backbenchers, those clustered along the back wall there, to make themselves at home. We have some, some seats over here, uh, and we would certainly invite you to come and make yourselves uh, comfortable. So, Lynn, if you uh, could join me at the podium. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.